I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. One, two, three, four. Hello, I'm Harriet Minter and this is the Badass Women's Hour. This week, do women talk too much in meetings? According to the man in charge of the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, we do. But as anyone who's seen the Hanford Parish Council meeting knows, it's the men who need to be muted. I will be talking about just why the myth of talkative women still exists and how we can all put it back in the waiting room. Plus, I talked to writer Nikesh Shulkla about what he's teaching his daughters about identity, racism and joy and what they're teaching him. And one listener wants to know whether she should quit her job and go freelance. Or is this madness in the middle of a pandemic? But before all that, have I mentioned that I have a book coming out? We're all entering our second year of the pandemic life. And for a lot of us, that means we're entering yet another year of working from home. If you're missing the office and feel like your career has hit pause, then my book, WFH, How to Build a Career You Love Outside the Office, is perfect for you. It helps you work out what you should be doing, tells you how to manage both your boss and your team, is filled with ideas for online networking, and is very strict about how to deal with a company that thinks it owns you. It's out on the 4th of March, but it's available to pre-order now in all the usual books place, including my favourite, bookshop.org. So, the head of the Tokyo Olympics thinks women talk too much in meetings. Like, he said this as a joke, I think. I think? I think he thought he was being funny. Um, but. There is a sort of, there's an ability, I think, in humans to read the room. So we say something which we think is funny and nobody really laughs. So we we stop saying it. We don't double down on it. But Yoshiro Mori, the head of the Tokyo 2020 Olympics organizing committee, really just kept going. So here's what he said. So referring to his time as chairman of the Japan Rugby Football Union, Mori said, women have a strong sense of rivalry. If one raises her hand to speak, all the others feel the need to speak too. Everyone ends up saying something. Then he added, if I say too much, the newspapers are going to write that I said bad things. Um, Yes, but I heard somebody say that if we were to increase the number of female board members, we have to regulate speaking time to some extent or else we'll never be able to finish. I'm not going to say who said that. We have about seven women at the organizing committee, but everyone understands their place. Now, there's so much to unpack in that. But let's just start with this final bit. We have seven women at the organizing committee, but everyone understands their place. So already implied upon that is this idea that there is a place, in quotes, for women. That women have a ranking in 
the organizing committee in that ranking is pretty far down the bottom. And when we see people saying things like that about women, about anyone really, that everyone understands their place, what they've already said is that there is no dissension. And obviously there is a very strict hierarchy in Japanese culture. Japanese culture is very much about understanding who is at the top and paying respect up. But I think we see too much of this in all of our cultures. We see too much, particularly in company culture, where people understand their place and then feel that they can't speak up, that they can't say, actually, I don't think this is right or that idea is not great. The example I always give about this is um, the Pepsi advert from a few years ago featuring one of the Kardashians that isn't a Kardashian, one of the Jenners. Is it Kylie? Or maybe it's the other one the other one. And uh, it was the Pepsi ad where this other Jenna somehow manages to stop a Black Lives protest by giving a can of Pepsi to a police officer. The whole thing is completely ridiculous. When it came out, there were lots of comments about A, how ridiculous it was, and B, the fact that it should be taken down. Pepsi took it down really quickly. It didn't last very long at all. And everyone's saying, well, this wouldn't have happened if, in fact, Pepsi had a more diverse, was a more diverse company. Now, when you look at the stats, Pepsi is actually quite a diverse company. It's got quite a diverse board. It does quite well in terms of ethnic diversity. So theoretically, because the numbers are there, it should not be making really inappropriate ads with the other Kardashian who's not Kardashian. And yet it did. And the reason it did is because clearly as a company, it has a culture where nobody can put their hand up and say, "Uh, I think that looks a bit awkward. If Pepsi had a truly kind of flat culture where people could put their hands up and say, do you know what? I think there's something about that ad that I don't really like or that feels really inappropriate or that feels really offensive to me without being taken apart from it, then that ad would never have been made. And this is the thing about Maury's comments around women talking too much, which is when we tell anyone that they talk too much, that their voice is too loud, we're instantly trying to silence them when really they could be very useful to us. Now, the myth that women talk too much is absolutely factually a myth. I think in meetings, men talk about 75% of the time. When you look at all the stats, it shows that in terms of number of words used in a meeting, men are out talking the women like there is no tomorrow. And if you wanted a really great example of that, then that would be the Hanford Parish Council meeting. If you have not seen this, can I urge you to spend or invest 20 minutes of your time watching it? Because it is a unique view into rural British life, quite frankly. So Hanford Parish Council is made up of the kind of elderly, I say elderly, I feel a bit bad saying elderly, like in their 60s and 70s, people that usually sit on parish councils, you know, they're very invested in their local community, they want to do the right thing, they want to make sure that they have the best possible village they can live in, they don't want people building a skyscraper in their back garden, all that jazz. And in particular, there are quite a lot of men on this parish council. And I say this with all due love, these men remind me a lot of my father. They are men who grew up in an era where it was quite okay to say things like women talk too much and we should set a limit on how much women talk in meetings. And 
this meeting, the parish council meeting, is being run by an employee of the parish council. So the councillors themselves volunteers, but there is an employee, which is Jackie Weaver. And Jackie Weaver is trying to bring order to this meeting. So she is trying to get the men who are postulating and prevaricating and basically talking way too much. She's trying to bring them to order. And when they don't come to order, because it's a Zoom meeting, she kicks them out and they have to get stuck in the waiting room, which is really, really funny. So it's just worth having a watch. But in this meeting, the belittling and bullying and really offensive, nasty remarks the men make to Jackie Weaver, it's, it's quite, it's funny, but it's also quite painful to watch, particularly as a woman, because you've definitely been sat in those meetings where you're being barracked at by men who are not talking about something that they know about. They're talking about something they have no clue about, and they are not factually accurate. Very, very annoying. And what we see in this meeting is one of the men saying to Jackie, they say, Jackie Weaver, you have no authority here. And the women in the meeting go, hang on, this isn't Jackie. Jackie does have the authority. Jackie can do what she wants. Jackie is right. And when they do that, you really see this thing that the Japanese head of the Olympics was talking about, which is women talking when other women talk. So we're not doing it to compete, Maury. We're doing it because the woman who's just spoken, her voice is being lost. And we know that if we speak to, her voice will be amplified. It is called amplification. It is a strategy that was defined in Obama's White House, but has been going on for donkey's years. Because when one of us speaks, the only way she's going to be heard is when the rest of us do too. Now, one man who's very keen on women talking more is Nikesh Shukla. He has two daughters and his first daughter was born just after the death of his mother. That whole period changed how he thought of himself and the world around him and he decided to write a book about it. Brown Baby is his story of becoming a parent and coming to terms with the death of his parent. He tells me about the joy of seeing the world through his daughter's eyes, what he's learnt about feminism and why he thinks it's more important now than ever that we speak the truth. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Hi, Nikesh. Hi, how are you doing? Good, thank you. What made you decide that it was time to write your own memoir? A couple of things. So in uh, in twenty eight early twenty eighteen, I was a columnist for the Observer, writing about parenting and raising my kids in what felt like quite bleak times. And I was asked if there was a larger piece of work in it. And my initial reaction was a bit like, "Oh God, I'm thirty eight. Who, who well, at the time I was thirty eight? Like, who who wants to write a memoir? Who's got anything to say about?" about their life at at their 38 and um and then I kind of remember that I'm a writer and it's my job to kind of find moments of wonder in the ordinary and that like my parenting journey hasn't been particularly out of the ordinary but Mm. I have a lot to say about it and so basically I just wanted to write about the stuff that kind of keeps me up at night and how to have conversations with my kids I feel like everything feels so like sad and hard and dark at the moment that writing a memoir that is asking the question, how do we raise our kids to be joyful and boundless, but also realistic about the world when it feels so bleak and we're so sad and angry about it is, you know, something that I think a lot of people will relate to. How, I mean, I have to ask the obvious question then, which is how do we raise our children to feel joyful? Because I think particularly at the moment, I know from my friends' children that they are, they're really aware that their kids are feeling a bit lost and as though they don't know what's going on in the world. How do we have conversations about difficulties but also finding joy with a younger generation? Well, I think I think one of the biggest lessons for, for me has been, you know, my kids are mixed race and, you know, my kids are brown. The book is called Brown Baby. And uh, so much of what we are thinking about is how do we talk to our kids about race and the fact mm. that they are, you know, brown girls. And um, and actually a lot of what I've dis- discovered is um, seeing the world through their eyes and talking to them um, about the world as they see it rather than the world as we see, we see yeah. it is really important. Um, and just sort of being present in how they feel and kind of allowing them to have those feelings. And and actually, I don't know if I if I come to any easy answers uh, in the book, which is why um, it's a book that I hope starts conversations. And it's also a book where I'm con- kind of continuing the conversation. So I launched a podcast alongside the book called Brown Baby Podcast, where I talk to people who are also parents who are also thinking about these things. Um, asking them exactly the same questions and what's wonderful is everyone's got different take on it everyone's got different strategies and you know that is you know that's just sort of proof of the pudding that like 
what's individual to our kids doesn't necessarily always work for others kids but what's wonderful is just the ability to have open and honest conversations about it as a father raising two daughters you said you have tried to see the world through their viewpoint and from their understanding of it what have they taught you about the world that you weren't aware of well, you know, what's what's interesting about it is I kind of document the, you know, the the fact that I, you know, as a writer who uh, reads a lot of books about feminism and I think that I know what's what, experiencing the world as they do has kind of um, made me kind of go, oh my God, I see what all these people have been talking and writing about. And while, um, while there's a case to be made that I should have just, you know, acknowledged on reading it reading this stuff that it was real like it there's still like a visceral thing that happens when you actually get to see it and we shouldn't kind of undermine that and I wanted to kind of talk about that and how that is a really important powerful feeling and you know the thing that I kind of discovered as I was um as I was thinking about you know as a dad how I could raise my kids and be you know thinking about the patriarchy and like where I might be mm-hmm. perpetuating misogyny or sexism and, and whatnot was actually I thought we should also really be thinking about how we raise our boys as well because that is so much more part of the equation I think. This is really interesting because I was actually just speaking to somebody about how we raise boys differently so what do you think is important for us to think about when it comes to raising young men and maybe particularly young men from either black or Asian backgrounds in the UK today? God, that's such a big question. I think... <laughs> Sorry, please, please solve all world issues now. Off you go. Yeah, sure. You've got 10 <laughs> minutes on a Saturday night uh, while your dinner is uh, nearly ready Absolutely. in the other room. Exactly. Uh, can you just that's solve ha- That's how we like to do it on this show, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, God you know i i guess i have to speak specifically about mm. south asian well like you yeah. know i guess south asian boys from indian descent because i cannot you know i cannot speak to to the yeah. black male experience at all but i can recommend a book called safe uh, which was edited by derek awusu that mm-hmm. that has essays by black men writing about just this very thing which i think is a really wonderful book um i think the main thing the the main thing i think about often is children's books if children's books were much were much more representative and and um, posited people from all walks of life, be they black or brown or white, uh, be they people with disabilities, be they people with, you know, a father and a mother or you know, a same sex parents and uh, and so on and so forth. Um, if if we normalised that in children's books, you know, children's um, what how children view the world is so often formed by what they see in, on in books and mm. what they see at school and also what they see on tv and if we can kind of normalize different difference and um diversity there then kids kind of grew up seeing other people as um you know the main characters in stories see, you know seeing themselves as the main characters in stories it, there is that thing of if you see it you can be it and you know i do think that like if if white kids were able to see brown kids as like the main characters in stories and see them as heroes and that that's really mm-hmm. powerful in the same way that boys see girls as main main characters and I, and I, and I do think that because so much of that is formed so early on, I mean I'm, I can only speak to like this one specific thing there are mm-hmm. many other things we could be doing yeah. but I guess because I'm a writer it's kind of a thing that I think about a lot well it's that 
the really important thing of actually being able to look at our own sphere of influence and say, actually, this is what we see in the area that we really know and understand. So that's the thing we can start to change. And I guess that's sort of what you did really with The Good Immigrant, right? Which was a book that I think changed for a lot of people actually what they thought of as, oh, hang on, here's a book written about the experience of uh, immigrants in, in the UK. I don't know if that's my kind of book, is it? And it just became a massive bestseller. Did you realise the impact it was going to have when you were putting it together? No, I did not at all. Uh, but uh, I um, I thought it would just be a small little thing that we did that would, might be influential within publishing circles, but yeah. it might probably wouldn't go beyond that. But it you know, it kind of just blew up, and and I kind of had to take that responsibility head on and see you know see what I could do with it. You know, Renieto Lodge, who wrote "Why I'm No Longer mm-hmm. Talking to White People About Race" and also contributed to the Good Immigrant, has this really bit brilliant thing where you know whenever she's asked the question how can i be a good ally to you she always says i i want i don't know where you hold power and influence and and i think you know and i took that spirit that of the thing that she was talking about and i put it into brown baby and i started to think well in our in ways that we might not acknowledge or might not think about we do hold certain bits of power and influence you know be it within our circle of friends or be it within our household or be it like in our job or be it um, amongst colleagues or be it on our street or, you know, for me, like writing books and people reading those books, I hold a a certain amount of power and influence. And I do think we do hold little bits. And so it's very much about thinking about how we want to wield that and what we want to do and what we want to put back out into the world. And I I guess that's so much of what I'm thinking about. I, I think people, we do feel really powerless because, you know, everything seems so big and so like beyond our sphere of comprehension and like massive world events are affecting us, uh, you know, on our streets, in our, in our flats and in our homes and stuff. But actually like we can make decisions to, to make what we control a bit, you know, be, a better place. And if we all kind of do that, then hopefully that would have a knock on effect. It's probably a very naive and very optimistic thing for me, but I kind of really needed this book to be optimistic because I felt so bleak about things. I mean, I think that's a really incredible um, incredible piece of self-awareness, actually, to know that what I need right now is to find the good in the dark. How did you go about doing that? Well, you know, it, it was about the it was about the joy. It was about mm. wanting my kids to feel joy. Um, there's an amazing writer called Musarok Wonga who once said to me, and he contributed to The Good Immigrant, and he, he's got a book out at the moment uh, called In the End It Was All About Love. And he once said to me, uh, when we were both talking about the kind of the mental toll it takes on people to talk about racism all the time. And, you know, for me, my thing has always been, I'm just a comedy fiction writer and I've kind of done mm. this thing and I kind of have to own the influence it's had but actually, if I could give it all up just to go back to comedy fiction writing, I would. Um, and he he kind of said, "Well, why must why are the oppressed always called upon to comment upon their oppression? Demand that their oppressors hold themselves to account." And I thought that was a really wonderful question to ask of the world, and it made really focus for me what I wanted to write towards. And what I wanted to write towards was joy. And if the, my way of communicating with the world, with my kids, with you know being honest with myself is through the through writing then like I had to write towards joy and and yeah as 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 you said like it's just what I needed at the time of writing and like 
you know, I was writing it in 2019 and then you know, 2020 happened and like, I really needed that joy even more. <laughs> and like, we're in 2021 and like, we're still we still this, need it. Yeah, we're still in this weird wilderness and I don't, I still, you know, no, none mm. of us know what will come, but we know where we've, like what's happened before. And so it can still feel a bit like, oh my, oh my God, I, you know, when you're like, you walk into a dark room you know that that you know that room you've been in that room hundreds of times before but there's no lights on and suddenly like the walls feel really far away and like you stumble towards the light switch you know it's there but you just like suddenly the formlessness Mm. of the the room feels unwieldy that's kind of how I was feeling uh, at the start of this year and so like this Mm. book has kind of come out at a time where I hope people will see the hopeful message in it like i i am as a writer as a fiction writer i am ultimately a hopeful novelist i'm not i'm not necessarily interested in writing myself like unhappy or bleak or like ambiguous endings like for me it's all about hope and optimism and like people finding their humanity and that's what i've done with this book i wanted to ask you about your relationship with your mother because the book has been described as a love letter to your late mother what did you learn about your relationship with her when you became a parent and then again through writing this book? Yeah, so I she died very suddenly 10 years ago and she died like the week before my first novel came out and I was so just in shock and so I decided that the thing that I needed to do in that at that time was just sort of focus on my writing my novel rather than allowing myself to feel depressed yeah. or feel grief and I just pushed that grief down and down and down to the point where when my child arrived there was just this absence and I realized that she had kind of prepared me to be a parent but I still had lots of questions about the world uh, and she just wasn't there for me to talk to and so um, that's kind of how this book is framed it's framed around the absence of my mother when I'm sort of asking these soul-searching questions about about the universe and and how I, in, you know, in, in, with my inability to kind of talk to her, I end up just kind of going down this rabbit hole. And and I, I never in, anticipated this book being a book about grief, but, you know, you kind of just have to write your truth, right? So um, it ended up being a book where, it ended up being a process through which I finally confronted my grief around my mum and like, you know, 10 years later, f- like fully went through the process that I'd kind of just pushed down and down and down. And because I pushed it so down, like it obviously explodes like a volcano. <laughs> and so like, it was quite a hard mm-hmm. time writing the book, but yeah. I feel glad to have done it because I've worked through some stuff that I hadn't just hadn't done. Do you think you will keep writing about your life? I know, dude, like, it's a bit, it's a bit awkward. Well, it's just, it's, no, I, when you just said that about, you know, I, I really worked through something I pushed down and down, and I thought it's an amazing thing to do, and it's also an incredibly vulnerable and brave thing to do to put that then into a book and out into the wider world. And I just wondered if it's something that you can keep doing or if you need to, like, take a break, go back to writing some funny comedy, and then I'll think about it later. Well, I guess I guess the thing is, right, that mm. whenever I whatever I do, I always put myself on the page. Like I, yeah. I'm always working through something, wh- whether it's fiction or mm-hmm. nonfiction. 
Um, I guess the thing is when you're talking about it, when you're promoting it, like you can always hide behind the fiction and the fiction can kind of mask the emotional truth of what you're doing. But everything I do has to come from an emotional truth. I'm not a writer who's interested in mental gymnastics. I'm a writer who's interested in just like so read like someone's soul being on the page and like mm-hmm. I love that. And whether I'm doing it in fiction or in nonfiction, like I guess I just I do feel more vulnerable because it's nonfiction and I can't hide behind it. But actually like when I think about it, you know, when when I'm essentially writing about fatherhood and what it means to be a man, mm. one of the things that we don't talk enough about is what I don't give ourselves enough space to do is be vulnerable. And I'm really hoping that this will encourage more men to kind of like interrogate their vulnerability and like accept that we all feel vulnerable and it's how we deal with that vulnerability that counts. I would love it if all men accepted that too. Thank you for challenging them to do it. Um, finally, you've, as you've been talking, as somebody you love to write, I've been getting so many great writing lessons, particularly putting your soul on the page. But what advice would you give to other writers out there, particularly writing in this weird period we're in now where everything feels a bit like it's on pause? Just write the truth put the truth on the page however it comes out i do think you know we all have stories to tell and our stories matter and the the best way to be the best way to be a writer is to read lots and then write lots and not always write thinking this is going to get published in the new yorker and i'm going to become a millionaire but more (laughs) i'm going to write this because i feel compelled to tell that i feel compelled to tell this story now and I'm the best person to write it because, and the more I have a go at doing this, the more I give myself to why I'm writing this and why I'm writing this now and why I'm the best person to tell this story, I will find my voice. And once I've found my voice, I'll be able to channel that towards mm-hmm. something that, you know, eventually will be great enough to get published. I think so many writers, um, decide to go like press publish before they've really discovered what their voice is i think that is brilliant advice nikesh thank you so much i will let you get back to your dinner um but thank you nikesh shukla there his new book brown baby is out now um you can just hear from listening to him speak what a beautiful way with words he has and just the manipulation of language and the way he expresses himself and he says the ability to put your soul on the page and just tell the truth as it is absolute gift and an incredible honestly one of my favorite writers so please do go check his book out that was Nicholas Shukla his new book Brown Baby is out now so are we all over our jobs yet well this week's listener definitely is uh every week we have a problem from a listener please do feel free to email me yours it's harriet.minter at gmail.com or you can find me on all social media and just dm me there This week's listener says, I think I need to quit my job. I'm bored and I hate my manager. I was freelancing before and I keep thinking how much happier I was just doing that. I want to quit and have already put out feelers to people I've worked with previously to see if they have anything for me. But is it stupid to quit my job in the middle of a pandemic? Shouldn't I just be grateful for the fact that I have a job right now? So there is a real culture, I think, around this idea of being grateful for a job. Now, if you have ever been out of work and desperate for a job, then you definitely know the feeling of sheer relief and 
calm and appreciation that happens when somebody says, yes, we want to hire you. And that is an absolutely acceptable level of gratitude, right? It is acceptable to be grateful to somebody for having a job that they want to fill, for wanting you to fill that job, and for being grateful to yourself for doing a good enough performance to be considered the person who should fill that job. But that doesn't mean you have to go on being grateful for it. Because gratitude is something we show when we are being given something that sort of, that is a gift. And a job is not a gift. And let me tell you why a job is not a gift. A job is not a gift because you don't just get given a salary at the end of the month. You have to work for the whole month to get the salary. So you have given something and somebody else has given you something in return. It's not a gift and it's an exchange of goods. So just in the same way that you might not feel all that grateful to the supermarket for providing food, even though it's a very useful service and you can be very glad of it, you don't really feel gratitude to it because you are paying for them to do that. And I think we need to move beyond this idea of feeling grateful to have a job. Yes, we are. if you are working right now, if you are not struggling for money right now, if you know that you have a regular income coming in, then be very thankful for that. Be happy about it. Be pleased with yourself for doing that. Uh, Be thankful that you are in a position where that is possible. And if you're not in that position, if you are looking for work, if you are thinking about um, how you're going to make ends meet this month, then that is not a reason to feel like you have nothing to be grateful for because you definitely do. But right now, you also get to feel like this sucks and I'm just not very happy about it. But we can't keep being grateful when we're in a job because when we keep being grateful when we're in a job, we perpetuate this idea that we owe the job something instead of it being a fair exchange of good. And that idea that we owe the job something then allows us to be taken advantage of, encourages us to work longer hours, means we don't ask for a pay rise, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So just dealing with this part now, should I just be feeling grateful for the fact that I have a job right now? No. You should be feeling pleased that you have a job right now. You should be feeling that you are doing a good job right now. You should be feeling that it is a fair exchange of goods, but you should not be feeling grateful. Now, should you uh, should you quit your job and go freelance? Well, that really is a question for you. Did you enjoy freelancing? Did you like hustling for the money? Do you are you happy to put yourself out there and really push to go and get the money? In which case, then you will be the lucky person that says freelancing is for me. And I think you can think about doing that. What I would think about before you do that, you should do two things. First thing is look at your bank balance and be realistic about what you need. Do you have enough money in there right now to be able to support yourself as you build that freelancing back up? How much freelancing would you need to do each month in order to make it worth the money? And will you be able to do that in the middle of a pandemic? I don't know. I know lots of freelancers who are making loads of money in the middle of a pandemic right now but I also know some that aren't. And so you need to start putting those feelers out as you have done and testing the water. What is the attitude like out there with the people you've worked with before? Are they saying that there is going to be money for you? Are they saying there's going to be work for you? Give them a call, set up some coffees, have some informal chats and just see what the lay of the land looks like. And when you get that idea, maybe rather than quitting your job and just starting freelancing straight away, do a kind of sloping thing. So maybe for a month or two, you could work a little bit harder and take on a few projects that you do in your spare time. So you're building up that freelance portfolio again without quitting this job. But let's be clear, you should quit this job. 
you have a manager you hate and you're bored. This is not the right job for you. Whether you go freelance, whether you find another job, give yourself a deadline of six months. I think six months is about the amount of time we should all be spending looking for a job and decide that you are leaving and you're out of there. Being bored at work, having a manager you hate, it's not enough. That is not a fair exchange of goods. So it's time to move on. That's all for this week. But as ever, if you like the show, please do rate, review and subscribe. It really helps other people find us. And if you are looking for a little bit of help when it comes to working from home, just a reminder that my book, WFH, How to Build a Career You Love Outside of the Office, is out now and you can find it at all good bookshops. You've been listening to Badass Women's Hour. If you like the show, then help more people find us. You can tag us or talk to us on social media using at Badass Women's Hour. Or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating. Five stars, please. It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more badass guests and in-depth chat. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.